And today's passage is Joshua 10, verses 1 through 15. So if you are able, we're going to ask that you rise for the reading of God's word. Uh, Before I begin, real quick, there are parts of the Bible where there's just a bunch of names and a bunch of really hard words to say, and you're like, ah, how do I read all of that? So if I botch any of these, I'm going to ask for your grace and forgiveness. (laughs) But here you go, Joshua 10, 1 through 15. As soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deborah, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. And the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the king of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as the Azekah and the Machedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as the Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for the season of Advent that we find ourselves in. We thank you, Lord, that you are our peace. Despite tumultuous circumstances, despite the world falling apart inside us and around us, you are our peace. Jesus, we praise you that you have been enthroned on our praises this morning and that your Holy Spirit dwells in our midst. And we simply ask, Lord, would you continue to meet with us? Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing before you in your sight. May they be edifying and encouraging, quipping and empowering, convicting of sin and healing of our hearts and souls. Lord Jesus, we simply want to meet with you. 
to gaze upon your face and be transformed in your presence, to be like you, to be for you. To do that this morning, we ask and pray through this text, through this man. Meet with us, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. As I've said, we are finding ourselves continuing our series through the book of Joshua that we have called Fighting for Our Inheritance. But this morning, before we fully jump into what Joshua 10 has to teach us, I want to tell you a quick story. In 2017, I was working at a church in New Jersey, and come late winter, early springtime, it came time for my annual review. Jobs have performance reviews. They exist for a reason. No problem. I was a bit nervous, just because... Why wouldn't you be nervous? But I had no reason to believe that this was going to be anything out of the ordinary. And so I meet the people who are conducting my annual review at the back of this restaurant that we frequented quite often for meetings. And when I get there, the woman who was an elder in our church, who was in charge of the discipleship ministries, hands me this piece of paper that is going to have our agenda for this annual review. And the agenda is... uh, the piece of paper is divided by a black line in the middle, vertically speaking, and it's got bullet points on either side. And the bullet points on the left, well, I'll do this. The bullet points on the left literally said pros. It had three bullet points, each about a sentence or less. And the one on the right said cons, and there wasn't white space on the page. So I went, ah. <laughs> and so we begin to have this You know, we order food, we chit-chat, whatever, and then it came to the time where, okay, let's go through this. And we went through the pro list, and it took about three and a half minutes, and that's not an exaggeration. And then we got to the con list, and I sat there for about another hour and a half. And it felt awful. I wanted to go home and cry, and I did. I felt uh, attacked. I felt unsupported. I felt betrayed. Partially because were there valid things on that list? Absolutely, there were. Were there not valid things on that list? Absolutely, there were. Were there things on that list that actually had nothing to do with me? There were. And so I walked out of there confused and angry and wrestling and heartbroken, to be quite frank. What I had found afterwards, though, in the coming days, weeks, months, and even two years after that meeting, was that meeting was something that was totally hijacked. That the two other people who were also performing my annual review talked just the night before with this woman about what the agenda was going to look like, and the piece of paper she handed me was not the piece of paper she decided with them. Now, it's really easy to tell the story and say, this woman's the villain. She sinned against me, and she did egregiously. It's really easy to just make her out to be the bad guy and blame it all on her. But what I found was, as the Lord has brought me back to that moment at random points throughout my life, is that there were little ways he was showing me I was there. I was fighting for you. And I was fighting for her too. There were moments that I remembered years after the fact of how the looks the other two men in the room were exchanging because they were realizing in real time what I came to understand after the fact. This isn't what we talked about. I learned, again, days and months later that there were a whole bunch of issues that she had, not necessarily internally, although that did exist, issues with the direction and the way that the church was heading because she felt like she was left in the dust. And I became the target for her pain and sin. 
There are all these different things that eventually led to her being asked to step down from leadership. It's not because of that one moment in general, but because it became a window into an opportunity that realized she was not honoring the things that she said she would be doing. I just happened to be the one, the, the scenario in the case where they came out to be true. But all this, friends, even taught me, as recently as even last week, which is why I'm telling you the story, the Lord was fighting for me, protecting me un, from unjust action towards me. But he was also fighting for her. Because what none of us realized in that room was she was in pain. And even there, the Lord was meeting her too. I'm sharing you the story, friends, because this week, we're going to look at this idea. The Lord is the one who fights on behalf of his people. Last week, we looked at the idea that integrity matters. Those two words encapsulate most of what Pastor Will had to share and teach with us. And if you haven't had a chance to go back and watch it, even if you were in-house, go do that. Because I can tell you for a fact, and I see it with my own two eyes, integrity is one of the values we see crumbling at an alarming rate in our world. And Jesus has something very powerfully but very preciously to say about that. It matters. It even comes up in our passage today. But this week, friends, the Lord is the one who fights on behalf of his people. Yes, we fight for our inheritance, but only because the Lord has fought first. And as we'll see, is still fighting. So this morning, this is where we're going. The Lord has fought for his people, past tense. Why is there fighting? The truth behind it. And the Lord is still fighting, present and future tense. So here we go. The beginning of our passage referenced back to the beginning of Joshua 9, where Pastor Will even had to point out that the first verse in 9, chapter 9, starts to take us in one direction narratively, and then all of a sudden it just pivots to this other story about the Gibeonites. And we're just left hanging over here. Well, not really, because we come back to it in Joshua 10. And so all those kings in the lowlands and on the countryside and the coasts that Joshua is writing about now show up in name and in place in Joshua 10. And these five kings make an alliance against Israel. So far, they've seen Jericho fall, which our passage records for us, and Ai fall. And Gibeon would have been the next if Gibeon didn't make a deceptive treaty with them. And so they know they're next. And they said, we're not just going to stand and watch. Because as we know, friends, they know too, the best defense is a good offense. So they get together. But here's one thing I want you to catch that really paints this picture of how this demonstrates the Lord is the one fighting for his people. There's a lot of reasons why this alliance exists. One, like we just mentioned, Jericho and Ai were defeated. Cities that they describe as more noble than Gibeon. Bigger, badder, richer, more powerful. They shouldn't have fallen, and yet they have. There is the idea that Israel has left no quarter. We cannot bargain or offer them a sum of treasure to buy their placency. We can't just appease them and say, okay, we'll give you a bunch of money every year, and then you just go on our way, you leave us alone. That hasn't worked for the other cities, so they know it's not going to work for them. There's the idea that the Gibeonites were traitors. They turned coat. They went to them first and said, no, no, make a treaty with us. Because if Gibeon had it, their alliance would not have been five. It probably would have been six. And as we'll see again later on, the Gibeonites are described, all of their men, all of their men are mighty warriors. That's an asset they could have used. But then here's an interesting one that we're going to have to visually describe for you. Canaan, the land, is cut in half. What does that mean? I know this isn't the greatest picture, but follow with me, please. 
This is the Jordan River, the blue line straight through the middle between the Sea of Galilee and the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. And Israel crosses over this, and God has promised all that is in green. All of it. Everything we have read thus far in Joshua happens in this red circle. They haven't made it very far, have they? A lot has happened, and they're right here. But here's what those alliance, that alliance, headed by Adoni Zedek, here's what they know. This is the region where all these other five cities and their kings come from. If they lose here, this figurative and metaphorical, but will become very literal, black line will exist. And there will be a South Canaan, and there will be a North Canaan. And then they get to do what we call divide and conquer. Which is literally what happens in Joshua 10, verses 16 and on. They know this is their last stand. If they don't stop them here, this is all forsaken. They can count it all as lost. And they don't want that to happen. And so they dig their heels in and they say, we're going to make our last stand here. It paints a picture for you of a cornered animal. One that's going to be desperate to do whatever they think is necessary to win. And if, if you don't believe me, just look at this last reason for this alliance. Adoni Zedek, who is the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the name that the city will become known by when David conquers it. So our passage, ironically enough, is looking ahead. But for now, it's under the reign of a man named Adoni Zedek, whose name means the Lord of Righteousness. Not the Lord is righteous, the Lord of Righteousness. As in, all you need to know and all you need to look to to see what is right and good in the world is me. It paints a picture of a man who's very prideful and arrogant. It paints a picture of a man who greatly fears, as Joshua 10 records. It paints a picture of a man who, out of the insecurity and the fear and the arrogance in his soul, is going to fight like literal hell. Because his name even paints this picture for us that if you have the might, you are right. It's why we say things like history is written by the victors. Because so much of our world now and then believes might equals right. So this alliance is a cornered animal. But then Israel comes onto the scene. They come onto the scene because this alliance attacks the Gibeonites. Why the Gibeonites? Why not Israel? Their beef was with Israel. But the Gibeonites are their servants. Remember, they're traitors. So they want to get back at these fools. But they also want to hit Israel where it hurts. If we take out your servants, it makes it easier to come after you. It's underhanded. It's devious. It's exactly what they want to do. And so they go. And Gibeon cries out to Israel, Hey, remember that truce we made? That treaty? We need you to make good on it now. Hold on. You mean the treaty that you deceived us into making with you and that we should never have made with you in the first place? That, yeah, that's our bad, but that's also definitely your bad too. <laughs> that's the treaty that now you're holding our feet to the fire and saying, you got to honor it, please. We're being attacked. Remember, Joshua 10 says the Gibeonites are mighty men. They're warriors. All of them. If a city full of mighty warriors is crying out, we need help, we can't defend ourselves, how big does this alliance, how big is it? What does it tell you about their might? What does it tell you about their ferocity? They will leave no quarter. And so Gibeon cries out, hey, help us. And Joshua and Israel now have a choice. 
Will they honor the agreement or not? This is where the integrity matters thing comes back. Will they honor it or not? Because here's a very real scenario that they could have played out. Hey, instead of us doing that, how about this? You guys figure it out. And if you're left victory, then maybe we'll honor our agreement, or maybe we'll just come in and slaughter you and be done with you in this treaty. Or if all of you perish, you've at least weakened the alliance of those five kings, which makes it easiest for us to come in and clean up house. So either way, win-win for us. You don't think that was an actual thing they wrestled with? How often are we presented opportunities where we know we have to go do a thing, and then it seems like there's an easy way out, we don't have to do it. And the temptation in our heart is, I don't have to do it. Yes. I don't have to. Somebody else is going to handle it. It's not on me anymore. But we know it's on us, because we said we would do it. They have a choice. But thankfully, they remember, they made this covenant not just with Gibeon, but with God. That's what the Joshua 9, 18 and 19 on the screen is referencing. The leaders have to remind the people, we have made this covenant with and before the Lord. If we go back on them, we go back on him. And now that is a very, very different scenario. You know why? Proverbs 11, years after the fact, will describe this spiritual truth. The faithful keep their righteousness, but the unfaithful, the disingenuous, bring about their own ruin bring about their own ruin. Literally, there is a spiritual principle that teaches us when we do not uphold our integrity, do not be surprised at the fruit that you will reap. And it's not anybody else's fault. It's yours. Wow. That's hard to hear. It is. But thank God they know that because they go and they fight. And by they, yes, Israel, but him. Remember, this is about the Lord has fought for his people. What's the first thing he reminds them? Do not fear. Why does God keep saying this? Honestly, ask yourself that for a second. Why does God keep saying this? Chapter after chapter, battle after battle. Do not fear. Because he knows their propensity to fear. He knows their propensity to want to give in to the thing that is going to be their undoing, which is why he reminds them again and again, do not fear. None of them are going to stand before you. Why? Because of Joshua 1.9. I go with you. I go with you. I go with you. And we've seen that play out time and time again. But in this passage, we see it play out in a whole new way that is breathtaking, church. It's breathtaking. First, God literally shows up and says just sends panic throughout the enemy. That alone would be enough. There are plenty of Old Testament and New Testament conflicts where all God has to do is show up and say, enemy, discord. And they're like, ah, oh, what are we doing? And that, that's it. That's all he has to do, and the battle is won. And God has done that. And then God keeps going. And this is all described before we ever get any description of what Israel does. Penmas and math will teach you order of operations matters, right? Parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, all that stuff, addition, subtraction. The way in which you do a math problem matters. The way in which this is listed matters because the Lord is the one who fought. Don't look at me like that, you guys over there. <laughs> the way in which this battle and this fighting is described matters. Israel's participation is not described first. The Lord's is. 
And he says he sends them into the panic. And then he sends literal hailstones. Could you imagine being on a field of battle, saying, we're going to win, and a hailstorm that was not there 30 seconds ago is now there, going, okay, this is going to be awkward, this is going to be an obstacle, we have to, but it's going to hit all of us. And it doesn't hit all of us, it just hits you. You'd be like, what on earth is happening right now? What kind of nonsense am I having to deal with? This is ridiculous. It is ridiculous, actually, for them. But for us, it's another display of the goodness and the might of Yahweh, who says, I fight for my people. I. That's not an idea that we just believe in an abstract. It's not just a thing that we know might be true, but we don't even see how it plays out in our lives. This passage shows us emphatically the Lord fights. He literally shows up. He says, I'm fighting. And because I'm Yahweh, I'm winning. There is no other outcome that's going to happen. That should be a breath of fresh air for our souls, friends. And so he says hailstones, which isn't the first time he sends hailstones, and it actually isn't the last time he said hailstones. One of the plagues of Egypt, Exodus 9, hailstones. So for God's people, even though everyone alive during this story has not seen those hailstones, they should hear the whispers of the God who has fought on their behalf to get them out of slavery in the first place, that is now fighting and get on their behalf to receive that inheritance he has promised them. Wow, how God is consistent. But even in Revelation, picturing uh, God's presence coming and picturing an idea of judgment and wrath is accompanied by a lot of things. Thunder and lightning, earthquakes, and hailstones. Hailstones show up again. They're always there. huh? But then we get to the really cool part of the first part of the passage. The sun stops. It just stops. Can you imagine waking up in the morning, it's 8 a.m., you're about to go to work, or 5.30, whenever you get up to go to work, and you go to have your lunch break and the sun's exactly where it was. And you get in your car, and you go home to drive, or you log off if you work from home, and you look out the window, and the sun's still there. And you have dinner, you do your evening routine, whatever it is you have going on that day, you get ready for bed, and you look up, and the sun's still there. Okay, at the very least, it should be moving, right? <laughs> like, even if it's daylight 24 hours, like it is in Alaska certain times of the year, the sun still moves. They can still see it go through the sky as the day goes on. But our passage tells us it doesn't even move. What? Like, honestly, think about that for just a second. If that even happened once, it would be major headline news. Every country on the planet would be talking about, why did the sun stop? Because it would have entire ramifications. It would mess up the ocean tides. It would mess up our solar farming. It would mess up everything. And it stops. It just stops. And what's crazy is, why does it stop? God makes it stop? Absolutely. But who asked for it to stop? Joshua. Joshua asks. It says, the Lord heeded his voice like he had never heeded a man's voice before or ever will again, which is true for in that time for that passage. God commiserated with Joshua in a way that was not replicated until many, many years later. But think about that for a second. It's not just that God stopped the sun. It's that Joshua had the gall and the confidence to say to the creator of everything that we know and everything we don't know, we're fighting, make the sun stop. And he says, you got it. I, I want that. <laughs> like, let's be honest, we want that. We want to be able to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have any gas in my tank. 
yes. And he goes, I love you so much, full tank. And you're like, yes. <laughs> or Jesus, I have a lot of extra bills this month, money. And God says, check your bank account, you're good. And you're like, wow, that'd be great. Or Jesus, I'm having this issue with this person. I just want them to know your love and grace. Could you do that? Boom, I could do that right now. And they just start breaking down in front of you and they're like, I need Jesus. And you're like, yes. We would love to be able to do that. Just like Joshua. And what's funny is, I seem to be talking about it in a sense as if it's not actually possible. But it is. Spooky. It is. The Lord fought for his people, and it was a display of his goodness to them. That's how good he is to them. It's also a display of the seriousness of his promise to them. I've said this once before, but I'll say it again from this stage. We don't take God as seriously as God takes himself. God reminds his people again and again, I've promised you this, it's good as gold. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear why I'm with you, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. It is as good as gold. God takes his promises very seriously because he knows his character and his track record. He knows his, the integrity that he himself has. He knows how good and true and of life that he is. That's why Jesus gets to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. He knows who he is. Do we know who he is? Why is Joshua praying for the son not a pipe dream and just an example in one passage? We're going to mention this briefly, friends, mostly because I want to make sure you catch that even though the Lord is the one fighting for his people, he absolutely calls for his people to fight alongside of him. When we get to Joshua 15, Jesus is speaking. Remember, book of Joshua, Joshua is he, Jesus. Jesus is speaking, and he says in this, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Yeah, we get that part. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Yeah, I get that. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We may have read this a thousand times. We may have an idea of what the fruit that Jesus is referencing might be. But let Jesus answer that question for us. If you remain in, my, in me and my, work, my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Why? Because we know and have said a thousand times, God's not a vending machine or a genie. He doesn't just exist to do our will and make us happy. He isn't. Why? Because this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. What's the fruit? The works that he does in us because we've remained in him, that we can ask. It shows ourselves to be his disciples. Even though this wasn't preached yet, Joshua knew the, co the core of this truth already. Being in intimacy and receiving the authority of heaven allows us to know the Father's heart. When we know the Father's heart, we already know what he is praying for. Remember, Jesus is the one who intercedes for us. He is always praying on behalf of his people and on behalf of the ones he wants to become his people. So when we decide to join in God with prayer and ask, he's already been asking for it. And because God has already been asking for it, you can consider it good as done. Joshua knew this, which is why he can literally make a celestial star hundreds of millions of miles away stop. Because Yahweh, who holds all of the universe in his hand, said, boop, you're not moving. And the sun went, yes, sir. That's crazy. <laughs> But, here's the big but. Was this all really necessary? Be honest with yourself for a second. 
Either you have had the conversation with yourself or with a loved one, or somebody who's really wrestling with the idea of following Jesus, that they look at the Bible, and they see the New Testament, and they can get behind Jesus. They can get behind the love and the peace, and they seem that, that Jesus seems to exemplify. They get behind the good moral teacher that is Jesus. He's a good guy, and he did good things, and we should just follow him and do the good things that he did, even though that is not what the New Testament is all about. But they can get behind that picture of Jesus. But then they look at the Old Testament, and you say, this is the same guy? Nah. I can get behind New Testament Jesus. I can't get behind Old Testament Jesus. I can't. Is all this bloodshed really necessary? Was all this massacre really, really the point of it all? Friends, it wasn't the point of it all. But was it necessary? What we need to be reminded of, friends, is something we've actually talked about at the very beginning of this series. And if you've forgotten, that's okay. That's the glory of YouTube. It exists on the internet. But the reality is these people that they are fighting are not just a random folk of people who have a different skin tone and maybe a semi-different language. The reality of the people that they are coming up against war is that they are spawned by rival divine beings. That when you look at places like Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 10, and Deuteronomy 32, it paints this picture that God created divine image bearers and human image bearers. That God wanted the two realms that he is Lord over to be stewarded by his creation. And what we see in Genesis 3 is that we rebelled. What we see in Genesis 6 is that they rebelled. We have all said in one way, shape, or form, I don't need you, I don't want you, and I am better off without you. The spiritual realm has done the same thing. And so what God says, fine, I'm a good God. I'm not forcing you into a relationship you don't want. If you don't want me, you don't get me. You're curious as to why the world is the way it is? Because we have said from the beginning, I don't want you. And God has said, fine, I'll give you what you want. <sighs> Lord, have mercy. <laughs> These people that they're fighting against are literally the work of divine rival human beings who are saying to God, God, not only do we don't need you, I'll replace you. I'll have my own image bearers. I'll show you I'm a better you than you are. I can be the next Yahweh. And so the Bible paints this very real picture that they'd start divine rival bloodlines. It's what we call the Anakim and the Nephilim, those parts of the Bible that are really kind of obscure, and we're like, what is it really trying to get out here? It is this idea that, yes, there are humans a long time ago, the giant clans, as the rest of the Old Testament describes. Remember Goliath? He's described as one of them. The giant clans that are of evil for evil. And they want nothing to do with Yahweh. Nothing. We like to think that God is the one who decided to wake up one morning and said, ah, let's just kill a bunch of people. When really the reality is God has said, I love you and I want you even though you want me. And they said, to hell with you. We will take you out. And God said, okay, I'll give you what you ask for. These people are occupiers. They're usurpers. They see the throne of heaven, and they want it for themselves. And they know that God has claimed for his people, Deuteronomy 32 tells us, Israel, Jacob, Judah, are his people. It is where the blessing for the nations will come from. It starts here, but it does not end there. But we haven't moved past that part yet in Joshua. So for now, God's people are only Israel. And they know that. And they don't care. Friends, it's a big deal. 
when we decide the things that God cares about are not worth caring about. God takes that very seriously. And so Psalm 107 teaches us, where does the consequences that I reap upon myself come from? It is the iniquity of my own sins. That's not just true for human image bearers, that's true for divine image bearers too. And so yes, this war wasn't pretty, but God so decreed that that land was his, and he needed it. Why? Because the blessing for the nations comes through Israel. If there's no Israel, there's no Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? If there's no Israel, there's no Jesus. But the sad truth, too, that we don't see yet, but we see if you just finish Joshua and move on to the next chapter in the Bible, Judges, is that God warns them time and time again, cohabiting with these people is not for your good. It's not for your good. I'm telling you to get rid of them because they are going to infect you, not the other way around. And Israel decides, no, we'll coexist with them. And God has to remind them one final time. They're going to be a trap for you. But not just their sins, not just their lifestyle, not just their choices, not just their words or actions or values. God is very particular. They're God's. When we choke on the idea of the spiritual realm and its implications, don't just listen to me. Don't. Let God speak for himself. And God says in Judges 2, they're gods, they're gods, they're false deities, these rebellious divine imagers will become snares to you. And guess what, friends? He was right, because he always is. How often do we get to that second or middle part of the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, all that stuff, and what do we see? We see horrible things that we don't talk about in front of our little kids because they're that horrific. If they showed up in movies, it'd be X-17 or whatever the, the highest rating for a movie is. Horrible, horrible, horrible things. The desecration of human life on every level and every given standard. The desecration of the land in every which way possible. It's horrific. And what leads them down that path? Because they said to Yahweh what we said in Genesis 3, what the divine image bearer said in Genesis 6, we don't need you and we'll replace you. We love to think, God, no, there could have been a way you could have saved and redeemed these people. No. You have to want to be saved. Godness necessarily isn't in the business of saying, I know you hate me. I know you don't think I exist. I know that you are doing everything to actively work against me. That's what you're spending your entire life doing. But guess what? At the end, surprise, I have you. It's not the way God works. That's cruel. That's actually cruel. And friends, they abandon Yahweh. They do. And that just plays out in the rest of the Old Testament. They abandon him. The truth, friends, is that God fought on Israel's behalf for their good and for the good of the world. The good of the whole world. Because even though they didn't have eyes to see it yet, the blessing for the nations was coming through them and it wasn't just for them. It was going to be for the whole world. All, Isaiah 66, Ezekiel 39, the Old Testament is rife with passages that show that God has come in and through his people for the people so that all the nations would come under his authority and under his umbrella again, that all the nations would be able to declare, you are Yahweh, and that is right and good. It is, friends, the ultimate thing that brings about the ultimate peace, right? We're on the second Sunday of Advent. Peace. Lord, give us peace. I have been praying since I was 
gosh, 11, 12, in the wake of 9-11, Lord, bring peace to the Middle East. It's not just a slogan and a catchy phrase. Oh, it rhymes. That's cool. But Lord, actually bring us peace. Bring peace in my heart. Bring peace to our world. Friends, that's never going to happen until Jesus comes and does his final act. It's not going to happen until the kingdom of God, the first thing that Jesus preaches when he walks upon the nation, the first thing he preaches when he, his ministry has been established, repent, why? Because the kingdom of God is here. I'm here. And everywhere I am king is the kingdom. Friends, when that day comes, then we will know, and mind, body, soul, the land and all creation itself, will know peace. Will know peace. Strife will come to an end, and there'll never be an after that which is a glorious day. And that's why God fought on behalf of his people. He is trying to give them the thing that they most desperately want and need. Remember, they were in slavery for how many years? 400 plus years. All they have known is strife and chaos. All they have known is discord. All they have known is being oppressed by their enemies. Do you know what they're desperate for? A land and a place where they can be with each other and be with their God. And nothing interrupts that. You know what they want? Eden. They want Eden back. We want Eden back. Because we know deep down inside, this isn't working. It's just not. God, bring me back to that place where your peace that surpasses understanding is all that I know. Wow, what a day that will be. And that's why God is fighting on his behalf, on their behalf, because he's that good and he wants to give that to them. It's just not an easy path. But that begs the question, wow, God was faithful to Israel. Hallelujah. And God is still faithful to Israel. Hallelujah. But is he faithful to the rest of us? Is he faithful and good to the rest of us? Is he still fighting? Yes. Yes, by God's grace, he is. Why and for what? Colossians 2 paints this picture that Jesus, having died on the cross, disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There was a second phase to this battle of Jesus fighting for his people. When he put on skin, it's the thing that we're celebrating this Advent season. He puts on skin and he says, I'm bringing the fight down to you. Up here is not enough anymore. I'm coming down to you, and I will do what is necessary to publicly make a spectacle of that which thinks it has triumph over you. Which is ironic because he made a public, public spectacle of himself. It's humiliating to die on the cross. I just had a conversation about this with a teenager just last week. It's humiliating. You're up there naked and bleeding and hurting for hours. The Romans devised crucifixion to be the most painful, most humiliating way you can kill a human being. You don't die because of blood loss. You die by asphyxiation. You run out of breath. He took that to make a public spectacle of them to show that, no, no, I'll fight the way I need to fight for my people and for the people I want to be my people, for their good, for the good of the world. 
And that's why we can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God. Why? He gives us the victory. That's war language. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a passage we love to reference just one or two verses in front of us where we say, death, where is your sting? It's swallowed up in the grave. We love that. It's true. Keep reading. We can give thanks to God because he's given us the victory in Christ Jesus. We're on the other side of that battle, friends. God hasn't put a stake in the ground and says, that's it. The rest of this is still playing out. The battles are still being fought, but the war has been won. The war has been won. If Jesus Christ didn't do this, we don't have any hope. Just read the earlier parts of 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, if Jesus Christ doesn't raise from the dead, you have no hope. Because then your faith isn't faith in anything. But he did. But he did. And he assures us this battle and this victory cannot be robbed. It cannot be sullied. It is won, not just for us, but for all those who want to claim God as he so desperately wants to claim them. It is good news, friends. But what else? What else is the fighting uh, in reference to? What is he still fighting for? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We read this and we go, okay, that makes sense. But what tense this is existing? Right? Tense, past, present, future. Languages like Greek have more tenses than English does. And so when we read this, friends, we need to understand that when Paul wrote this, when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's both talk talking about now and forever. Now and forever. God is with me, nothing can be against me now. God is with me, nothing can be against me forever. This isn't a picture of a God who just said, all right, it's fixed. Bye. It's a God who says, I'm fighting. And I'm still fighting. And I'm still fighting. And I'm still fighting. And I'm still fighting. Because I love you. And I'm still fighting. Because I love them. And I'm still fighting. Because this isn't okay. And I'm still fighting. Because evil needs to recognize it sits under my footstool. And I'm fighting because all those powers and principalities and authorities that were humiliated are trying to claw their way back, but I'm fighting. And they have no quarter. If God is for us, who could be against us? No, and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who conquered us? No, who loved us. Why does Jesus fight? Because he loves us. So often we talk about this love of God and it's just this abstract idea. But when it actually and literally puts on flesh and skin, we understand that this is God. And what he does is intentional and on purpose. He is displaying through Jesus beforehand and after his love for us in very concrete, specific ways. But Paul keeps going. What can we say can never be against us? I am convinced that neither death nor life, the thing that we fear at the end of life or anything in this life, nor angels, nor demons, let God speak for himself. Nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future. Remember, the present and the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This should cause you to pause and say, oh my goodness, God loves me. Oh my goodness, is he for me? Oh my goodness, is he for us? Not for our twisted sense of good, but for the ultimate good and peace. This should make us take our breaths away and say, wow, Jesus, all of these things would come against me but I have no reason to fear. None, for you are with me. You have won. All of this is swallowed up. Thanks be to God for his love for us. But it keeps going. 
We get to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is one of those chapters in the Bible that should blow the, your, your conception of being able to imagine things. Whatever level of imagination you think you have, no matter how creative or not, you read Revelation 19 and go, whoa, God is way more imaginative and creative than I thought. And we get to Revelation 19, and Revelation 19, Jesus shows up on the scene. And how is Jesus described? I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. It's the end. It's the end of time. What war is there left to be waged? He's about to call all of his enemies under his footstool and says it's done. And yet he's still fighting. The Lord is still fighting on behalf of his people. Even at the end. It is a, a very interesting thing, friends, to consider that Jesus could be presented in any which way and fashion. The analogies and the imagery is all throughout the Bible. The shepherd, the sanctifier, the Emmanuel, the plan maker. This should sound familiar to some of you. I'm talking to them. And yet, how does he picture, or how does he depict himself as one who's coming to wage war? I fight for my people. I fight for my people, and they see victory because of me. So friends, this is the question we have to wrestle with this morning. Where do we need to see the Lord fighting on our behalf today? Yes, for our good, but for the good of the world, for the good of those we interact with, and for his glory. We make the joke every Thanksgiving, and then we make it again when it comes to Christmas time, spending time with family members or people that are like family, they maybe are hard to be with, or maybe don't know Jesus. Friends, may this be an opportunity to look at those and say, no, let me go to war for their hearts and their souls. Let me love them the way Jesus does, because Jesus is fighting for them. It could be, I, I still have conflict and, and issues in my own life, Jesus. Maybe with my biological family. Maybe at work. Maybe in church. Maybe in other social friend groups. Maybe with myself. Jesus, fight for me. Show me that I don't need to labor and strive, like it says in Psalm 46, where God says, be still and know that I am God. That translation says to actually say, cease striving. Stop trying. And let me do what I do best. And win. For you. And for them. Because I know it's good. I am good. And I can bring it about. Friends, where do we need to see the Lord fighting on our behalf? In very specific ways. Sometimes it may feel awkward for us to be very specific with God. But Jesus is the one himself who says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. He didn't put any parameters on that. So ask. Little kids, another way that Jesus describes what our faith should look like, have no hesitancy of asking their fathers and mothers for anything. For anything. It's not on us to make God say yes. It's on us to ask. It's up to God to say yes, no, maybe, silence, or we're going to talk about this in a different way. So ask. God, I need a job. Ask. God, I need breakthrough in this area. Ask. God, I need to see a change in me. Ask. May you be desperate in your asking like Jesus was in the garden, who Luke describes sweats blood. That's how desperate he's asking. May we be desperate in seeking the face of our Lord that says, Jesus, I need you to fight for me today. I can't do it. I'm at the end of myself. I am exhausted of all options. I have nothing if I don't have you. So fight for me. Fight for me. Change me. Work through me. Work in me. Work around me. Fight for me, Jesus. Because otherwise, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. That level of desperation, 
God always sees. Because a broken and contrite heart is exactly the pieces he needs to start building together the life that he is looking for in us. Exactly. Desperation should never be a sign of despair for you, friends, even though those words are connected. The desperation in you, as long as it is pointed towards Jesus, should always be a sign of hope because the man who rides on the white horse is coming. He's coming. He's going to wage war. And he wins. He wins because the Lord fights for his people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would we be desperate for you today? Lord Jesus, would we be desperate for you today? We need you. We love you. We know you love us.